human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with Els Kuya Jones, the Deputy Director of the North Star Fund, a community foundation working to create a more just and equitable New York. Els is a bright spot in a dark time, and she brings her passion for grassroots justice, wealth redistribution, and learning deeper empathy onto the job with her every day. As a note, the audio on this episode gets a little funky in moments, such as the way of working from home in a COVID world sometimes. But Els's intelligence and enthusiasm shines right through. Please enjoy episode six, Equity and Empathy in Social Justice with Els Kuya Jones. Awesome. Um, how how are you feeling today? How's your heart today? Huh. Hmm. I didn't make it. I didn't make it to the exercise. I try to do that Saturday mornings. That didn't happen. Um. I had a great breakfast with my family. Um. Something really cute happened. Uh, Bolden, our five-year-old, uh, needed to use the bathroom mid-meal, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't go because he he like he said, "I want to be part of the conversation." Oh, my yeah, God. and like it's like, oh, he likes hanging out with us, you know. Yeah. Even I don't remember what we were talking about. It wasn't anything like juicy um but you know i think that the time when your kid wants to hang out with you is fleeting yeah it'll mean during teenage tween years and then probably won't come back until they're 30 yeah i mean i don't have any children yet of my own but i think that that's the scariest part of it for me is the idea that if i do have a kid they will hate me at some point and there's nothing that I can do about it, but I just, I just love it when, um, I see parents cultivate like, um, conversational friendship with their children as if their child is like a little, a little grown up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't mind, because, um, the listeners will not, um, see you, they'll only hear you. Um, give a little audio tour of where you are right now because it really looks like a tropical paradise the way you've set up your space. <laughs> Not at all. I am in my bedroom and I am looking at my husband's side of the room, which you don't see on the screen, but <laughs> it is his um, drawers where he puts his clothes and then on top of it are like his vitamins, a stack of his hats that are like nested on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, his drugstore toiletries, you know, his lotion and um, his brush for his hair. And then to my left is my armoire and my beautifully set up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Perfectly appointed. <laughs> um, not at all, not at all. 
Um, but yeah, I'm in my bedroom and what Lissa, the interviewer, sees right now is um, my plants and um, the curtain to the that covers the window so that my neighbors don't see me getting dressed. <laughs> and it's a flowing white curtain. There's a little bit of a light breeze. You yeah. are all like uh, made up with your hair swiped to the side, like you're on vacation. And I just think it's so interesting, you know, especially during this pandemic time, what we see when we speak to people, what is the window that we get into their lives? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I wonder, uh, I was, I wanted to ask you first, actually, have you been, well, actually, before I do that, I'm going to introduce you at the top of the podcast in a separate recording, but I want to mention Else, you are the deputy director for the North Star Fund of New York. And if you wouldn't mind giving a brief description of what the North Star Fund does and what you do for them. Absolutely. North Star Fund is a really dope organization that has been around since 1979. And we fund grassroots organizing in New York City and the Hudson Valley. And what makes us different from other foundations is we don't have an endowment from which we take the interest and make grants out of that money, um, which is how most foundations run. Um, Instead, we have to fundraise for every dollar that we give out. And every year we basically start at zero because we are giving away via grants all of the money that we raise and in that way um we're not hoarding wealth Mm -hmm. we're not gatekeepers to wealth we know that the social justice movement needs all of the resources that it can possibly get its hands on Mm -hmm. in order to defeat the huge injustices that um have been around since the beginning of this nation and exists today in huge exclamation points. And, (laughs) you know, uh, it's that starts with our unfortunate president and trickles down Mm -hmm. to everyone else. Um, So yeah, it's it's a really great organization. And um, especially during this time of the pandemic, we've really been able to support the folks who are most uh, impacted by the injustices that are happening. And um, what I do specifically for the organization is lead the development efforts, the fundraising efforts. I have a small team, a small and mighty team. Mm -hmm. And we fundraise from individuals who understand that maybe their wealth was built on the backs of, um, of ex- you know, uh, people of color, marginalized people of color, um, extracted from communities that have been, um, where, where land and labor has been stolen since the beginning of time. Mm. And so there's um, a generation of people who understand that and want to, do their philanthropy in a way that is more just, understanding that the reason why they're wealthy is not because of, um, you know, their own hard work 
or some divine right by God, but has been stolen. And so we're really lucky to have a lot of donors who think that way and, and really have that analysis and understand that and give to us generously so that we can then um, make grants to the folks who are doing the really hard work. Um, I'm so, by the way, blown away. And I want to just mention that I was a little bit nervous to have this conversation because I think that the work you do is so important that it makes me want to make sure that we hear all the parts of it. Um, and I wonder, like when you were talking about this, because I know it's specific to New York, a New York, which is a place that that houses the zip, like some of the wealthiest zip codes in the country and some of the most economically depressed zip codes in the country. And I wonder if something like the North Star Fund um, could, if you think it could exist um, as successfully in other cities in the country as it does in New York, given that about the wealth. In fact, it does. There are many uh, funds that, that um, are of a similar model to us. Uh, they are, they were founded at around the same time um, as North Star Fund in 1979. Um, it was a, a small group of young, wealthy people of inherited wealth who knew that the way that their families were doing their philanthropy was just supporting the status quo. They came from the women's rights movement and um, the anti-war movement, they were protesting Vietnam. And they learned that the way that their, their very wealthy families were doing their philanthropy was simply that they're the ones with the money, so they get to make the decisions on who the money goes to. So um, across the country, these young people um, who had inherited wealth started these funds in San Francisco and Chicago and Seattle. Um, all over the country, these these small funds, and here in New York, and the, and many of them still exist today. Um, here in New York, uh, many of those founding donors are still donors to North Star Fund, which is great. But what what they what they wanted to switch and how they wanted to change the philanthropy was instead of them making the decisions, like like what happens in many philanthropic institutions where you have a program officer um, making decisions. At North Star, our program officer doesn't make the decisions. No one on staff makes the funding decisions. Instead, she facilitates a conversation of um, grassroots activists and organizers who are doing the work mm -hmm. and who know, who have their ear to the ground, knows what it takes to win a campaign, know who's doing really good work that we, from where our offices are on 8th Avenue, don't know what's happening in Queen. We don't necessarily, we're, we aren't the experts on what nail salon workers need, what uh, food workers need, what the delivery people need. So um, they're the ones who make the decisions and that has remained a hallmark of the way that we do our work. And it, it's super exciting. I love that, it. Yeah, right? And, and finally, you know, 41 years later, a lot of other organizations are coming around and like, what is this participatory grant making that you speak of? How do you do it? <laughs> How, you know, as if it's this rocket science thing. And on one hand, it's really exciting that traditional foundations with their billion dollar endowments are suddenly like growing hip to this idea. Yeah. But also it's not rocket science. It's just like, give up your power. Let 
the community organizers who are the real experts make the decision. It's not that hard. You make it sound very easy, but I mean, isn't it so interesting that that's like, this is a, an area that you've been working on for, for now, what, almost six years you've been working for North Star. I did a little LinkedIn stalking. Don't mind me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I wonder how it feels for you um, um, and for the people that you work with that this idea that's been around for a while is just right now having the volume turned up on it. Like people are waking up to this idea of like, putting like maybe the reason why there are these injustices is because the wealth is not evenly distributed. I mean, it's not rocket science say to you or to us, but it is to, uh, to many more people. And so I wonder what your experience has been, um, you know, as you watch the scales fall from the eyes of so many people all at once. Yeah. So shortly after George Floyd was killed, an amazing thing happened. Um, money was coming from all over the place mm -hmm. toward um, Let Us Breathe, which is a fund that we hold at North Star Fund for Black-led organizing, mm -hmm. and also Communities United for Police Reform, which is an organization that we fiscally sponsor at North Star. And it was bananas. Like, donations <laughs> were coming by the minute. I am not exaggerating. And our platform uh, exploded three times. Like wow. we couldn't handle the volume of donations. Wow. It got fixed quickly. Thank you to my development team. Um, <laughs> but what it, what was, I was so grateful that people understood how important and how urgent this work is because people are dying at the hands of police. Mm -hmm. But also, if you can imagine if this level of investment in Black communities had been happening for decades, we wouldn't be where we are now. Absolutely. So it, it, it's disappointing that it requires the death very visible death of black lives in order to get people to act. Why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I know. I think, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about um, how uh, the pandemic slowed so much of society down to a halt and the, the positives that are arising from that and how many things wouldn't have happened, how many movements wouldn't have exploded if people weren't, um, if people could still go about their daily lives and have these distractions, but it required this like total silencing of the society that we, we are at the hamster wheel um, in order for people to, to wake up to these things. So I, I do see the positive and the negative, and it must be really frustrating for you to be like, hello, we've been here all along. Where were you? Yeah. Right. What I will say to that is um, where I work, what we do fund is not around services, although services are, are super important. Mm -hmm. um, we don't fund awareness campaigns, although that's super important. We fund the actual work that will create change, mm -hmm. and we call that organizing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, the work that we fund for people who are really trying to change the system, mm -hmm. it's become, it, it, like you said, like, eyes are opening now that 
that we need more than food pantries and homeless shelters because that is basically supporting the injustice and the fact that we don't have enough enough housing for people or enough or enough like the economic justice doesn't exist or the systems aren't in place such that people who work will have enough food to eat so instead it's like um a bandage, a bandage on the sim symptoms rather than actually fixing the problem. So we don't fund things like that. Instead, we fund uh, campaigns and the work that's going to change right. such that we no longer need homeless shelters, such right. that we no longer uh, need food pantries so that people will have a living wage. Um, so when the pandemic hit, it was like had we been, had folks other than us been investing in systems change, maybe there would have been a better safety net, a stronger safety net. Um, the social contract would have been honored. Mm -hmm. The fact that right now our government cannot give aid to the folks who are hurting because of a problem that is not their fault is our government not doing the basic obligation that they have. Right. I mean, the government is supposed to be public servants. Yes. Who are they serving right now? Not the public. Billionaires. Yeah, exactly. And that's about it. That's about it. Um, I... Uh, yeah, and that this leads me to a question that I, I had for you because I could honestly talk about this part of it all day, but I want to bring it back to a more granular level and talk about you and your emotional experience, lived experience every day doing this work. And like, for instance, I, I have served tables for like eight years. And one of the reasons why I like it is because at the end of my shift, I can leave and it really just completely falls away. I don't bring any of it home with me. I mean, unless there was a really nasty guest that I served or whatever, but your work is um, so important and, and, and rightly so, and you're so passionate about it. I wonder, um, what you do to to turn off at the end of the day, or if you do turn off, if there is if there are daily practices you have to create a healthy boundary for yourself so that you don't get completely swept up in the wave of it. That's a good question. Um, what the 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 idea of um, having it go away is actually. It's something that I like about the work that I do. I like that I can be someone who um, whose job is not just a nine to five. Sure. I yeah. like that it's a 24 seven because then I'm not split into like, Elle's the mom, Elle's the wife. I like that I am working towards social justice always, that it gives me something, it gives me, um, at worst, like moral superiority. <laughs> <laughs> you earned it. It's okay. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, it gives it gives me like my life, and I, I appreciate that about the work. I like that I don't have to be. Uh, I don't know, like 
embarrassed about the product. Like I sell Coca-Cola or something yeah, or, sure. or I work for Amazon, which makes, um, you know, I, I'm not to say anything about the people who work in the warehouses or whatever, but they're supporting this thing that is so evil and they themselves are not getting fed or right. treated justly, you know? Right. So I'm glad that I can bring my whole self to the work mm -hmm. and I can be, pr and that I can be proud of it. Um, as far as healthy boundaries or how I turn it off, I don't know that they're healthy. I love <laughs> junky TV and junk food. Yes. So healthy at all. Um, Specifically what? Like if you, you get home and you turn on a TV, like what is your first go-to junk TV? So it's, it's, I'm working from home now, so it's like always home, but, but like the kid is asleep, you know, and say everyone is asleep and I get to be alone for the first time. It's, um, right now it's Nurse Jackie and potato chips. Amazing. I don't think Nurse Jackie is junk. I think that is solid entertainment. It is so good. Yeah. It is so good. I meant junk, like a binging, binging. Yes. Like I'm, I'm on the seventh season already you know like I went through it like that's what I meant yeah it's excellent tv it's qual. it's such good writing it's it's so good plus Edie Falco all day long I love her agreed um on the healthier note I am getting into some writing uh reading um mm -hmm. I have decided that I'm going to step away from white writers because mm -hmm. it's like all of my favorite authors are white men like all of my favorite books are written by white. why have I why am I not yeah. reading Filipino writers yeah and so I ordered three books by Filipino writers and I'm diving in mm -hmm. and uh I love it it's so inspiring and it's so I feel seen, like my family and my my family's immigration here. It's like, oh wow! It's like someone has is bearing witness to this yeah. that I didn't know about, and it's so it, it's just amazing. Do you have um, any particular authors or books that that you are ready to recommend? Yes, I recommend as soon as this podcast is over, go order, but not on Amazon. I'm boycotting nope. Amazon. <laughs> Fuckers. Um, Local bookstores only, please. Yes. Um, Mia Alvarez in the country. Okay. It is a collection of short stories about the Filipino diaspora. And I just finished it yesterday and I'm blown away. Oh, amazing. I'm going to order it right after this. Yay. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that too. And about the programming that I received. I mean, I grew up in a Connecticut suburb, quite, quite white. And the programming that I received growing up was a lot of white male authors. Um, and uh, that is, is boring and it's really just very one-sided. It's very one-sided. Um, uh, so you, again, with the LinkedIn, um, stalking that I've done. I, I know that you've been involved in social justice in various ways for a while. And so I wonder, like, what brought you to, to that, to that area of work in the first place? Or did you, were you born knowing that you were an activist? I didn't know that activism existed at a young age. Uh, 
I do remember the first time I experienced racism mm -hmm. and I was very young. I was three mm -hmm. and even as a three-year-old, I knew it was wrong. Are you, and, would you share it? Do you feel? Yeah, definitely. Um, so my father, we were in the living room of our house and um, the living room window looked out to the street and he was looking out the living room window and saw a couple who was our neighbor, um, a black man and a Chinese woman. Mm -hmm and was talking about how, this really hurts me to say, um, how they're gonna have the ugliest children. Oh my God. Their eyes are gonna be like this, and for those of you on the radio or on the podcast, and he like stretched out his eyes. Oh my God. And their mouths are gonna be like this, and he, he pulled down his lower um, lip to, oh you know, like, big mouth or big lips and and um and uh slanted eyes and i saw that and i was like no that can't be right um this was your your father my dad <laughs> and you know for those of you on the podcast who don't know i'm married to a black man my son is black and filipino and is the most adorable human being <laughs> on the planet. Uh, not ugly. Not, no. not ugly. <laughs> and has Asian eyes and a b beautiful thick lips. Oh, and so cute. <laughs> all the things, but not ugly. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, but to have that modeled for you at that time and obviously stuck with you three is a really young age to, to carry any memories from. Mm -hmm. So, um, you brought that with you. And then at what point did that become a, a, a trauma that you carried with you that you turned into work? Like at what point did you look for work that could help support your desire to break that in our society? That's, I don't, I don't know if there was a particular point. I wish, hmm. What had happened was, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had this dead-end job in radio that wasn't getting me anywhere um, because I had grown up with, you know, like having immigrant Filipino parents who didn't go to college in this country. And I just didn't know that I was supposed to advocate for myself and tell my boss, hey, give me an editor shift or like, it's never anything that I'd ever done before. Mm -hmm. I was I was in radio after college, literally thinking that it happens like in the movies, I would get discovered. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, no one discovered me. <laughs> That's very rude. <laughs> so rude. I was there for nine years. Oh my gosh. In the newsroom, yeah. And uh, and then someone from the um, rock station across the hall was like, hey, you should check out this poetry organization. Mm -hmm. And so I went to hear, it was a youth poetry organization and they did slam poetry mm -hmm. at, at its height in the early 2000s. And uh, they were so powerful. These young people, you know, they were teenagers telling their stories, my story about like immigration and like having 
problems with your parents and who am I and and speaking out against the war. Um, and I was so blown away by these young people who had a voice. And here I was in my late 20s by then, who still haven't used my voice. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, I have to work for them. Oh, that's amazing. So that is what I did. That's such an amazing aha moment. Yeah, so I just showed up at all of their shows, sat in the front row, bothered the executive director, all the, you know, like every single mm -hmm. show. Um, like, what can I, you know, what can I do? And um, so he took me on as a consultant to work with their events person. Sure. Um, and uh, they they had their annual fundraising event that traditionally raised $30,000 in one night. And that, and then the year that I came on, um, we we doubled it. We raised 60. Oh, incredible. Because I was so like excited about this new thing that I found oh, <laughs> and I was telling everybody. And um, so the following year they hired me again and they said, do you think you could raise a hundred thousand? And I said, yes, but if I do, then you have to hire me full time. And then I would leave radio. I would leave my failing career in radio and I would come work for you. So we didn't raise 100, we, we raised 80. And That's still uh, pretty good, I would say. And then they hired me anyway. So that, that was my entry into the arts and social justice because, you know, the content, the content of the poetry that these young people were spitting was of course about their lived experience, which taught me more about injustice and what, what it is like to live in the world more than working in a newsroom yeah. for nine years, like, and more than being at um, a liberal university for, you know, when I, I went to UC Berkeley, which is like, the whole um, protest, the war movement, and like everything came from there. And yet my eyes were really opened by the arts and young people. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the shift. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I, think, um, <laughs> I think that what you do is so cool because I think that you are situated at the center of this Venn diagram between like the moneyed world, which is so often um, happens in these like private spaces or these like sterile office corporate spaces. Like money is usually like held in these like very protected sterile spaces. And you connect that with what's actually happening in the grassroots movement on the street with actual human beings who are doing, you know, blue collar jobs, important jobs. Um, and, and like what the North fund, does this make sense? What I'm saying What the North star fund does is like at the center of that. And so I wonder, do you have any moments that you can share of liaising between those two places that, that has been uncomfortable or, or difficult or, or, um, like what that diplomacy has looked like for you? It's what I love about North Star Fund. <laughs> because not only are we bringing in folks who have wealth, 
um, to support and resource the social justice movement. We are also, you know, pre-COVID and now we're trying to figure out how to do it virtually, um, creating spaces that bring uh, the worlds together. And it's not just two worlds. There's like so many different people in between. Sure. Uh, the organizers in the same room or virtual room, what have you, with uh, the donors learning from one another. And that breaks these ideas, these power dynamic ideas that usually exist in traditional philanthropy, where the donor can do no wrong. Right. You have to go through hoops of fire to impress the donor. You have to be super grateful to the donor. You have to sing the donor's praises, even though after they write you a check, they go off and pollute the environment and do right. all kinds of weird things, you know, and they're off to their yoga classes. And, and really their gift to you was just their rent to give them peace of mind or so that they could sleep at night. But really they are supporting the institutions and the structures that are keeping poor people poor. Sure. So we, don't want that kind of philanthropy. We are trying to break that down. We're trying to flip and and shift power dynamics such that it's actually the organizers and the community activists who are the ones with the power. And they are the ones who are the experts. And they're the ones who are gonna tell you, the donor, what they need. And because you, the donor, have your money from extracted wealth and from generations of stealing from indigenous and black people, you're gonna give it to us. And, and we're not gonna be like flipping, doing backflips to show our gratitude because this is just reparations. This is just how it's supposed to be. This is because that wealth is not yours. It was yeah. never yours. You're just holding it in your Gucci bag. <laughs> I could just like kiss you through the screen right now for <laughs> all of this. I just love I just love that it exists. I did not make this up. I didn't like figure it out. I am so lucky to have come to North Star Fund and learned from my coworkers, my peers, from the organizers and activists. I and and it all made sense when the, these um, ideas were pointed out to me. But um, I have so many people to thank for showing me the way. But you had to be ready to to see the way and to become a vessel for this message. So I just, I want to give you some credit as well. Okay, I know you didn't invent it, but. Um, <laughs> um, and so when I uh, reached out to you, I think I mentioned that I was going to ask you about, uh, to think about a personal story or a moment um, in which uh, empathy played an, an obvious role or in which you found it lacking. And I, it, from any time in your career, whether it's at the North Star Fund or any other place, whether it was the radio uh, station, um, can, you, uh, can you share a moment in which empathy played a role for you? Sure. My empathy has grown so much at North Star. So Prior to North Star Fund, I worked in traditional nonprofit organizations. And traditional nonprofit organizations mean the nonprofit industrial complex where 
it's the same, even if they have missions that serve and support communities of color, black and brown families, what have you, does not mean that racism does not exist mm -hmm. or that white supremacy is not the rule of the organization. Yeah. And so I've come up in, I've come up and grew up in that model mm -hmm. and um, acting out parts of white supremacy culture. And that has, is what had me be successful. I'm making finger quotes. Um, <laughs> it was because I knew how to do that dance. I knew exactly. how to do it. So I come to North Star Fund where folks are super woke, where it is in their language that they're dismantling white supremacy, where suddenly my ways of being, perfectionism, punctuality, all of the, the you know having to write everything down and and be very presentational mm -hmm. um was not uh the culture at north star and all, and most of all demanding that from the folks who i supervised and managed mm -hmm. it was a super wake-up call for me to be told by my by someone i supervised that my behavior is mimicking white supremacy culture and I need to stop. <laughs> and I was like, wow. moi? You know? <laughs> Me? But, but, and it hurt. Yeah. But at that time, she showed empathy towards me to be able to tell me, her boss. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a hard conversation to have. Absolutely. Because um, how many times are we mad at our bosses and we just like, get drunk and talk shit <laughs> that's like right which it doesn't it doesn't actually solve anything or like change anything in the structure it just keeps the structure going yeah um, yes so for her to tell me that was a very brave conversation mm -hmm. and actually is a form of love to hold someone accountable sure um not via shaming but just to hold them accountable is is very generous. It's a and form of love because it it because it means that she believed that you could do better. If she didn't believe that, she wouldn't have brought it up to you. Yeah. 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 Wow, that's amazing. So so that was that was great. And just to uh and it, it wasn't overnight. It wasn't like, oh yes, like it takes a long time to unlearn to unlearn your behaviors. So um in my early years at North Star Fund, for example, I, um, you know, I managed the development team. There was a, a, a one morning where we were meeting our consultants on a Saturday morning, and um, I expected the uh, development person who had, holds the relationship to be there first to open the office so that the, and I showed up to find the consultants waiting outside of our office, standing there. And I was embarrassed and I was like, uh, and I was mad. I'm like, she doesn't respect people's time. She doesn't care. She's not, I don't know. I had this, all these negative things. Now that I am understanding empathy and relating to the human being first, not the supervisee, not the development professional, 
Um, now what comes to my mind if someone's late is, I hope she's okay. <laughs> Did anyone check on her? Is she, you know, like, is she okay? You know? And that's a, it's a better feeling to have, like, of course, like worry, but I get to like love her in that way. Yeah, it's a huge shift in consciousness. And I think it's only recently that like that kind of shift, because I, like you, I mean, I was a person who was raised to kind of fear authority and and do things in a, in a very certain like rule-based way. Um, but that meant that like I had to put on a persona or have a certain identity for quote unquote work that was different from the real person underneath who was maybe a little more soft edged, a human being, you know? And um, so what you're saying gives me a lot of hope for the future of workplaces in general. Um, and in a way that we can reframe our experiences to remember that we're we're doing the work that we do to help other human beings. We're not doing the work so that like the work institution yeah. is what's served. Yeah. Right. So on that note, um, as, as a social justice organization, you can't purport to try to be a social justice organization externally and then internally in your office have unjust practices totally. that are totally. messed up and are causing oppression on a personal level mm -hmm. if you're trying to like fight oppression outside. So when we just did our strategic plan um, for the next three years and I'm really proud of it because we say, um, very in a very straightforward manner that we are dismantling white supremacy but also not just that but we we admit like in the way we're dismantling white supremacy how it exists in philanthropy but also how it exists within north star fund mm -hmm. so we're admitting that this is white supremacy is like so ingrained in all of us that we have to actively practice bringing it down and fighting it and um, practicing anti-racism and admitting to that rather than saying, we know how to do this, we're great, we're perfect, and we're gonna go. Well, sure, because to not, I feel like that's what breaks the cycle of violence and oppression is people really looking at themselves in the mirror, all people looking at themselves in the mirror and, and noting the ways in which we we falter or we support an oppressive system without even realizing that we do. I mean, I I just think that's, that's such an amazing example for yeah. other people. I just, um, I, yeah, I'm just really honored to talk to you about it. <laughs> Yay, I'm happy to talk to you about it. <laughs> and I'm curious, um, because you went from because you were in radio for so long and now you're doing this completely other thing. Um, with the arts in between. With the arts in between. Yes. Which is how we met each other yes. through a nonprofit. Yes. Um, what do you notice as uh, the differences in terms of like people relating to each other, like on a day-to-day -day basis in 
in your experience in radio versus in your experience um yeah star so my hope is that my experience in radio is very different from the way young people are experiencing radio now like i was in radio many many years ago so it could be that as our country has gotten better at talking about race um that it's not the same so i don't know that i can compare it because again this was like in the early 2000s um but but i will say that um i was in a newsroom with mostly white people and the fact that folks didn't ask me what I was doing there and what I wanted <laughs> and why I'd been, uh, you know, a production assistant for nine years, you know what I mean? Like, I just, that would not happen where I work now. Like one of the first questions I ask with people who we hire or bring on or come in at entry level is like, what do you want to do? And um, what, what do you, what's your next step, you know, after this place? And so that we are supporting the person to do a good job um, with us and we get them ready for their next gig. Um, and we develop them toward whatever it is that they want, um, whether that be philanthropy or not. Um, I think that's so important. Like anybody who's listening, who manages people, you should know what your supervisees, what they're gunning after, whether it be your job, <laughs> um, which is fine because you probably don't want the job that you have right now forever either. So, you know, you're also moving up. So like, and there's nothing, I don't think there's anything that shows your success more than the folks who you're managing and supervising succeeding yeah. and doing the thing that they want to do. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, I love the people who I worked with in radio many, many years ago. We're all Facebook friends now. Um, I have regrets that um, I didn't know enough to open my mouth and be like, give me a shot, you know, or I want to be on the air, whatever. Like, I, it just didn't even occur to me sure. to um, open my mouth because, uh, yeah, I just didn't know. Well, it I wasn't, you weren't ever shown that that was a possibility and I mean I think that's the case with a lot of like hierarchical structures of work and I think it's actually such an amazing way to look at empathy to see it as um not just like uh, complimenting somebody you know on their shirt that day but like really caring about a deeper level of that person and and so much so that you um want for their upward mobilization um, in whatever direction that they want. Like that, that seems like a very active form of empathy. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that um, my first job in radio was at a sports station, mm -hmm. <laughs> all, white men, all white men. And um, I, you know, my radio job didn't, wasn't enough for me to pay the rent. So I had to work in retail at, you know, after my shift and my retail job, um i had to wear a suit so uh so i would show up in radio wearing a suit and the men on the radio would make fun of me they would say oh look at Els walking in here she thinks this is television someone please tell Els this is radio she looks like she's trying to be the next connie chung and oh, no. 
<laughs> yeah, and so what, what's funny is I did want to be the next Connie Chung, but I was so in my young, insecure years and not really being able to relate to white men, just not having much experience in it. Mm-hmm. I it, it shrank me. It was like, oh, like being that ambitious will have me made fun of on the air. And what doubly sucks is that I think that those guys probably liked me and they were teasing me to just bring me in, you know, into this radio banter thing. But I was, I just didn't have the um, analysis to understand what was going on. And so I think that is part of the reason why I was uh, silenced and not being like, hey, give me a shot because like being ambitious or wanting to be Connie Chung will get you made fun of. Right. I mean, and reg- I mean, listen, that's a whole other discussion about how men, you know, make fun of or bully women if they're interested in them and that whole thing that we learn on the playground when we're five. Totally different conversation. But um, even if they were, they liked you and they were being playful, they weren't making an attempt to um, connect to you in like, uh, a set of behaviors or language that that made sense to you. They were doing it on their terms and in their language. And so um, that was just like a lack of outreach on their part. So I, um, I relate and I'm sorry. And I'm just really glad that you found an environment that is so completely different from that to be in right now. Yeah, I hope radio is different now. I hope... I hope it is. But you know, when we look at the news and the talking heads and like this thing that I had hoped to be, like Fox News, I'm so glad, you know, in some ways I'm so glad. I'm not a television journalist because if you're good, you'll be called fake news by this administration. Right. And if you're bad, um, that's just a sad existence. (laughs) (laughs) But plus like, plus, you're in a way like your fame if you get famous to that level it might um like hobble you or like handicap you a little bit for what you're allowed to say quote unquote you know Mm -hmm. in that public way whereas the work that you do can be super expansive and unapologetic and there isn't the fame part of it that you have to worry about like appeasing fans or like you know or the corporation yeah Right. Yeah. Um, well, you're amazing. This has been enlightening. And um, I want to end the conversation with, so this podcast is for um, the company I work for, which is a, an, app, an app for Slack called Zany, which is uh, designed to bring empathy and authentic human connection into remote workspaces. Um, and Zany does this by asking a different question each week to team members that they all answer so they can kind of get to know each other in a totally non-work related way. So I want to end this interview with one of Zany's questions okay. and ask you, Els Kuya Jones, what is your hidden talent? <laughs> I can write sonnets in iambic pentameter. Yes. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is that a holdover from um, high school? 
It is a holdover from after college. You know, before we were all on our phones. Oh, I'm aging myself now. It's and okay. I I am too. I'm right there. <laughs> we can't, you know, back in the, I, I was always on public transportation and can, and uh, we didn't have, um, iPods where we can just skip music and just listen to our jam or whatever and nor did we have phones where you can just scroll so I would just memorize William Shakespeare and and just to myself get that rhythm that rhythm just so deeply embedded in me that then I could reproduce it with my own subject matter and poems and love poems and dance poems whatever um, so it comes from that it comes from not being so connected to technologies that I could be so analog and just have William Shakespeare in my brain all the time. That's amazing. I miss those times. I miss when we could be bored enough to have the space to do that. <laughs> yeah. Do, yeah. You, um, do you have a favorite, uh, either sonnet or chunk of a sonnet, Shakespeare's or your own? You know, my aesthetic has completely changed. <laughs> it really has. Um, my favorite poem right now is by Lucille Clifton. Mm -hmm. I love her. Yeah, me too. Won't you celebrate with me? Uh, look that up along with when you get off this and you order Mia Alvarez in the country. But you probably already knew. Won't you celebrate with me? I mean, I love it, but I don't know if all the listeners know it, so now they do. Okay. <laughs> uh, saw, is there anything that you wanna that you wanna say um, before we wrap it up? Just before this, I said I was having um, breakfast with my family, and I asked Russell, uh, who you know, um, what his definition of empathy was, mm -hmm. and I really liked his description, and it was that no matter who you're talking to or who you're dealing with, who you're mad at, whatever the situation is, that person has the same rights, desires, dreams, has, has you know, to this, not the same specific dreams, but as human as you are, they are too. Mm -hmm. And I think in this country where we've become so divisive, we think that those people over there are clearly idiots. <laughs> and, you know, and that's not gonna get us to the place where we need to be. I love that so much. And I credit Russell and I credit <laughs> you for marrying him. And the two of you are the best power couple. Um, <laughs> Alice, thank, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode six of What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. To learn more about Els, you can find her on LinkedIn as Els, E-L-Z, Kuya, C-U-Y-A. You can learn more about how the North Star Fund is fighting for justice and equity in New York by visiting northstarfund.org. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E dot A-P-P. -P. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.
everything else after.